Chapter Ten of the Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers, by Catherine Crow. Chapter Ten: The Future That Awaits Us, Part Two. Dismissing the idea, therefore, that heaven and hell are places in which the soul is imprisoned, whether in bliss or woe, and supposing that, by a magnetic relation, it may remain connected with the sphere to which it previously belonged, we may easily conceive that if it have the memory of the past, the more entirely sensuous its life in the body may have been, the closer it will cling to the scene of its former joys. Or, even if its sojourn on earth were not a period of joy, but the contrary, still, if it have no heavenward aspirations, it will find itself, if not in actual woe, yet aimless, objectless, and out of a congenial element. It has no longer the organs whereby it perceived communicated with and enjoyed the material world and its pleasures the joys of heaven are not its joys we might as well expect a hardened prisoner in newgate associating with others as hardened as himself to melt into ecstatic delight at the idea of that which he cannot apprehend how helpless and inefficient such a condition seems and how natural it is to us to imagine that under such circumstances there might be awakened a considerable desire to manifest itself to those yet living in the flesh, if such a manifestation be possible. And what right we have, in direct contradiction to all tradition, to assert that it is not, we may raise up a variety of objections from physical science but we cannot be sure that these are applicable to the case, and of the laws of spirit we know very little, since we are only acquainted with it as circumscribed, confined, and impeded in its operations by the body. And whenever such abnormal states occur, as enable it to act with any degree of independence, man, under the dominion of his all-sufficient reason, denies and disowns the facts that the manifestation of a spirit to the living whether seen or heard is an exception and not the rule is evident for supposing the desire to exist at all it must exist in millions and millions of instances which never take effect the circumstances must therefore no doubt be very peculiar as regards both parties in which such a manifestation is possible what these are we have very little means of knowing but as far as we do know we are led to conclude that a certain magnetic rapport or polarity constitutes this condition while at the same time as regards the seer there must be what the prophet called the opening of the eye which may perhaps signify the seeing of the spirit without the aid of the bodily organ, a condition which may temporarily occur to any one under we know not what influence, 
but which seems to a certain degree hereditary in some families the following passage is quoted from sir william hamilton's edition of dr reed's works published in eighteen forty six no man can show it to be impossible to the supreme being to have given us the power of perceiving external objects without any such organs that is our organs of sense we have reason to believe that when we put off these bodies and all the organs belonging to them our perceptive powers shall rather be improved than destroyed or impaired we have reason to believe that the supreme being perceives everything in a much more perfect manner than we do without bodily organs we have reason to believe that there are other created beings endowed with powers of perception more perfect and more extensive than ours without any such organs as we find necessary and sir william hamilton adds the following note however astonishing it is now proved beyond all rational doubt that in certain abnormal states of the nervous organism perceptions are possible through other than the ordinary channels of the sense of the existence of this faculty in nature any one who chooses may satisfy himself by a very moderate degree of trouble provided he undertake the investigation honestly and this being granted another objection if not altogether removed is considerably weakened i allude to the fact that in numerous reported cases of ghost seeing the forms were visible to only one person even though others were present which of course rendered them indistinguishable from cases of spectral illusion and indeed unless some additional evidence be afforded they must remain so still only we have gained thus much that this objection is no longer unanswerable for whether the phenomenon is to be referred to a mutual rapport or to the opening of the spiritual eye we comprehend how one may see what others do not but really if the seeing depended upon ordinary vision i cannot perceive that the difficulty is insurmountable for we perfectly well know that some people are endowed with an acuteness of sense or power of perception which is utterly incomprehensible to others for without entering into the disputed region of clear seeing everybody must have met with instances of those strange antipathies to certain objects accompanied by an extraordinary capacity for perceiving their presence which remain utterly unexplained not to speak of cats and hares where some electrical effects might be conceived i lately heard of a gentleman who fainted if he were introduced into a room where there was a raspberry tart and that there have been persons endowed with a faculty for discovering the proximity of water and metals even without the aid of the divining rod which latter marvel seems to be now clearly established as an electrical phenomenon will scarcely admit of further doubt a very eminent person with whom i am acquainted possessing extremely acute olfactory powers is the subject of one single exception he is insensible to the odor of a bean-field however potent but it would surely be very absurd in him to deny that the bean-field emits an odor 
and the evidence of the majority against him is too strong to admit of his doing so now we have only the evidence of a minority with regard to the existence of certain faculties not generally developed but surely it argues great presumption to dispute their possibility we might i think with more appearance of reason insist upon it that my friend must be mistaken and that he does smell the beanfield for we have the majority against him there most decidedly the difference is that nobody cares whether the odor of the beanfield is perceptible or not but if the same gentleman asserted that he had seen a ghost beyond all doubt his word would be disputed though we do not know what the conditions are that developed the faculty of what st paul calls the discerning of spirits there is reason to believe that the approach of death is one i have heard of too many instances of this kind where the departing person has been in the entire possession of his or her faculties to doubt that in our last moments we are frequently visited by those whom have gone before us and it being admitted by all physiologists that preternatural faculties are sometimes exhibited at this period we can have no right to say that the discerning of spirits is not one of them there is an interesting story recorded by beaumont in his world of spirits and quoted by dr hibbert with the remark that no reasonable doubt can be placed on the authenticity of the narrative as it was drawn up by the bishop of gloucester from the recital of the young lady's father and i mention it here not for any singularity attending it but first because its authenticity is admitted and next on account of the manner in which so much being granted the fact is attempted to be explained away sir charles lee by his first lady had only one daughter of which she died in childbirth and when she was dead her sister the lady everard desired to have the education of the child and she was very well educated till she was marriageable and a match was concluded for her with sir w parkins but was then prevented in an extraordinary manner upon a thursday night she thinking she saw a light in her chamber after she was in bed knocked for her maid who presently came to her and she asked why she left a candle burning in her room the maid answered that she had left none and that there was none but what she had brought with her at that time then she said it must be the fire but that her maid told her was quite out adding she believed it was only a dream whereupon miss lee answered that it might be so and composed herself again to sleep but about two of the clock she was awakened again and saw the apparition of a little woman between her curtains and her pillow who told her she was her mother that she was happy and that by twelve of the clock the next day she would be with her whereupon she knocked again for her maid called for her clothes and when she was dressed went into her closet and came not out again till nine and then brought out with her a letter sealed to her father carried it to her aunt the lady everard told her what had happened and desired that as soon as she was dead it might be sent to him the lady thought she was suddenly fallen mad and therefore sent presently away to chelmsford for a physician and surgeon who both came immediately but the physician could discern no indication of what the lady imagined 
or of any indisposition of her body notwithstanding the lady would needs have her let blood which was done accordingly and when the young woman had patiently let them do what they would with her she desired that the chaplain might be called to read prayers and when the prayers were ended she took her guitar and psalm-book and sat down upon a chair without arms and played and sung so melodiously and admirably that her music-master who was then there admired at it and near the stroke of twelve she rose and sat herself down in a great chair with arms and presently fetching a strong breathing or two she immediately expired and was so suddenly cold as was much wondered at by the physician and surgeon she died at waltham in essex three miles from chelmsford and the letter was sent to sir charles at his home in warwickshire but he was so afflicted at the death of his daughter that he came not till she was buried but when he came he caused her to be taken up and to be buried with her mother at edmonton as she desired in her letter this circumstance occurred in the year sixteen sixty two and is as dr hibbert observes one of the most interesting ghost stories on record yet he insists on placing it under the category of spectral illusions upon the plea that let the physician whose skill he arraigns say what he would her death within so short a period proves that she must have been indisposed at the time she saw the vision and that probably the languishing female herself might have unintentionally contributed to the more strict verification of the ghost's prediction concluding with these words all that can be said of it is that the coincidence was a fortunate one for without it the story would probably never have met with a recorder etc etc now i ask if this is a fair way of treating any fact transmitted to us on authority which the objector himself admits to be perfectly satisfactory more especially as the assistants on the occasion appear to have been quite as unwilling to believe in the supernatural interpretation of it as dr hibbert could have been himself had he been present for what more could he have done than conclude the young lady to be mad and bled her a line of practice which is precisely what would be followed at the present time and which proves that they were very well aware of the sensuous illusions produced by a disordered state of the nervous system and with respect to his conclusion that the languishing female contributed to the verification of the prediction we are entitled to ask where is the proof that she was languishing a very clever watchmaker once told me that a watch may go perfectly well for years and at length stop suddenly in consequence of an organic defect in its construction which only becomes perceptible even to the eye of a watchmaker when this effect takes place and we do not know that many persons have suddenly fallen dead immediately after declaring themselves in the best possible health and we have therefore no right to dispute what the narrator implies namely that there were no sensible indications of the impending catastrophe there was either some organic defect or derangement in this lady's physical economy which rendered her death inevitable at the hour of noon on that particular thursday 
or there was not. If there was, and her certain death was impending at that hour, how came she acquainted with the fact? Surely it is a monstrous assumption to say that it was a fortunate coincidence, when no reason whatever is given us for concluding that she felt otherwise than perfectly well. If, on the contrary, we are to take refuge in the supposition that there was no death impending, and that she only died of the fright, how came she, feeling perfectly well, and in this case we have a right to conclude being perfectly well, to be the subject of such an extraordinary spectral illusion? And if such spectral illusions can occur to people in a good normal state of health, does it not become very desirable to give us some clearer theory of them than we have at present? But there is a third presumption to which the skeptical may have recourse, in order to get rid of this well-established and therefore very troublesome fact, namely, that Miss Lee was ill, although unconscious of it herself, and indicating no symptoms that could guide her physician to an enlightened diagnosis, and that the proof of this is to be found in the occurrence of the spectral illusion, and that this spectral illusion so impressed her that it occasioned the precise fulfillment of the imaginary prediction, an hypothesis which appears to me to be pressing very hard on the spectral illusion, for it is first called upon to establish the fact of an existing indisposition of no slight character, of which neither patient nor physician was aware, and it is next required to kill the lady with unerring certainty, at the hour appointed, she being, according to the only authority we have for the story, in a perfectly calm and composed state of mind for there is nothing to be discerned in the description of her demeanor but an entire and willing submission to the announced decree, accompanied by that pleasing exaltation which appears to me perfectly natural under the circumstances, and I do not think that anything we know of human vitality can justify us in believing that life can be so easily extinguished. But to such straits people are reduced who write with a predetermination to place their facts on a Procrustean bed till they have fitted them into their own cherished theory. In the above-recorded case of Miss Lee, the motive for the visit is a sufficient one, but one of the commonest objections to such narrations is the insignificance of the motive when any communications is made, or there being apparently no motive at all when none is made. Where any previous attachments have subsisted, we need seek no further for an impelling cause. But in other cases, this impelling cause must probably be sought, in the earthly rapport still subsisting, and the urgent desire of the spirit to manifest itself and establish a communication where its thoughts and affections still reside, and we must consider that, provided there be no law of God prohibiting its revisiting the earth, which law would of course supersede all other laws, then, as I have before observed, where its thoughts and affections are, it must be also. What is it but our heavy material bodies that prevents us from being where our thoughts are, but the being near us and the manifesting itself to us? are two very different things. 
the latter evidently depending on conditions we do not yet understand as i am not writing a book on vital magnetism and there are so many already accessible to everybody who chooses to be informed on it i shall not here enter into the subject of magnetic rapport it being i believe now generally admitted except by the most obstinate skeptics that such a relation can be established between two human beings in what this relation consists is a more difficult question but the most rational view appears to be that of a magnetic polarity which is attempted to be explained by two theories the dynamical and the ethereal the one viewing the phenomena as simply the result of the transmission of forces the other hypothetizing an ether which pervades all space and penetrates all substance maintaining the connection between body and soul and between matter and spirit to most minds this latter hypothesis will be the most comprehensible on which account since the result would be the same in either case we may adopt for the moment and there will then be less difficulty in conceiving that the influence of ether of every being or thing animate or inanimate must extend beyond the periphery of its own terminations and that this must be eminently the case when there is animal life the nerves forming the readiest conductors for this supposed imponderable the proofs of the existence of this ether are said to be manifold and more especially to be found in the circumstances that every created thing sheds an atmosphere around it after its kind this atmosphere becoming under certain conditions perceptible or even visible as in the instances of electric fish etc the fascinations of serpents the influence of human beings upon plants and vice versa and finally the phenomena of animal magnetism and the undoubted fact to which i myself can bear witness that the most ignorant girls when in a state of somnambulism have been known to declare that they saw their magnetizer surrounded by a halo of light and it is doubtless this halo of light that from their being strongly magnetic men has frequently been observed to surround the heads of saints and eminently holy persons the temperament that produced the internal fervor causing the visible manifestation of it by means of this ether or force a never-ceasing motion and an intercommunication are sustained between all created things and between created things and their creator who sustains them and creates them ever anew by the constant exertion of his divine will of which this is the messenger and the agent as it is between our will and our own bodies and without this sustaining will so exerted the whole would fall away dissolve and die for it is the life of the universe that all inanimate objects emit an influence greater or less extending beyond their own peripheries is established by their effects on various susceptible individuals as well as on somnambules and thus there exists a universal polarity and rapport which are however stronger between certain organisms and every being stands in a varying relation of positive and negative to every other with regard to these theories however 
where there is so much obscurity even in the language i do not wish to insist more especially as i am fully aware that this subject may be discussed in a manner much more congruous with a dynamical spirit of the philosophy of this century but in the meanwhile as either of the causes alluded to is capable of producing the effects we adopt the hypothesis of an all-pervading ether as the one most easily conceived admitting this then to be the case we begin to have some notion of the modus operandi by which a spirit may manifest itself to us whether to our internal universal sense or even to our sensuous organs and we may also find one stumbling-block removed out of our way namely that it shall be visible or even audible to one person and not to another or at one time and not another for by means of this ether or force we are in communication with all spirit as well as with all matter and since it is the vehicle of will a strong exertion of will may reinforce its influence to a degree far beyond our ordinary conceptions but man is not acquainted with his own power and has consequently no faith in his own will nor is it probably the design of providence in ordinary cases that he should he cannot therefore exert it if he could he might remove mountains even as it is we know something of the power of will in its effect on other organisms as exhibited by certain strong-willed individuals also in popular movements and more manifestly in the influence and far-working of the magnetizer on his patient the power of will like the seeing of the spirit is latent in our nature to be developed in god's own time but meanwhile slight examples are found shooting up here and there to keep alive in man the consciousness that he is a spirit and give evidence of his divine origin what especial laws may appertain to this supersensuous domain of nature of course we cannot know and it is therefore impossible for us to pronounce how far a spirit is free or not free at all times to manifest itself and we can therefore at present advance no reason for these manifestations not being the rule instead of the exception the law which restrains more frequent intercourse may for anything we know to the contrary have its relaxations and its limitations founded in nature and a rapport with or the power of acting on particular individuals may arise from causes of which we are equally ignorant undoubtedly the receptivity of the corporeal being is one of the necessary conditions while on the part of the incorporeal the will is at once the cause and the agent that produces the effect while attachment whether to individuals or to the lost joys of the world is the motive the happy spirits in whom this latter impulse is weak and who would float away into the glorious light of the pure moral law would have little temptation to return and at least would only be brought back by their holy affections or desire to serve mankind the less happy 
clinging to their dear corporeal life, would hover nearer to the earth, and I do question much whether the often ridiculed idea of the mystics, that there is a moral weight as well as a moral darkness, be not founded in truth. We know very well that even these substantial bodies of ours are to our own sensations, and very possibly, if the thing could be tested, would prove to be in fact lighter or heavier, according to the lightness or heaviness of the spirit, terms used figuratively, but perhaps capable of a literal interpretation, and thus the common idea of up and down as applied to heaven and hell is founded in truth, though not mathematically correct. We familiarly use the words up and down to express farther or nearer, as regards the planet on which we live. Experience seems to justify this view of the case, for supposing the phenomena I am treating to be facts, and not spectral illusions, all tradition shows that the spirits most frequently manifested to man have been evidently not in a state of bliss, while, when bright ones appeared, it has been to serve him, and hence the old persuasion that they were chiefly the wicked that haunted the earth and hence also the foundation for the belief that not only the murderer but the murdered returned to vex the living and the just view that in taking away life the injury is not confined to the body but extends to the surprised and angry soul which is quote, cut off even in the blossom of its sin unhouseled disappointed unannelled no reckoning made but sent to its account, with all its imperfections on its head. Unquote. It seems also to be gathered from experience that those whose lives have been rendered wretched rest not in their graves. At least several accounts I have met with, as well as tradition, countenance this view, and this may originate in the fact that cruelty and ill-usage frequently produce very pernicious effects on the mind of the sufferer, in many instances inspiring not resignation or a pious desire for death, but resentment and an eager longing for a fair share of earthly enjoyment. Supposing also the feelings and prejudices of the earthly life to accompany this dispossessed soul, for though the liberation from the body inducts it into certain privileges inherent in spirit, its moral qualities remain as they were. As the tree falls, so it shall lie. Supposing, therefore, that these feelings and prejudices and recollections of its past life are carried with it, we see at once why the discontented spirits of the heathen world could not rest till their bodies had obtained sepulture why the buried money should torment the soul of the miser, and why the religious opinions, whatever they may have been, believed in the flesh, seem to survive with the spirit. There are two remarkable exceptions, however, and these are precisely such as might be expected. Those who during their corporeal life have not believed in a future state return to warn their friends against the same error, there is another world, said the brother of the young lady who appeared to her in the cathedral of York on the day he was drowned, and there are several similar instances recorded. The belief that this life 
is the be-all and the end-all here is a mistake that death must instantly rectify the other exception i allude to is that toleration of which unfortunately we see much less than is desirable in this world seems happily to prevail in the next for among the numerous narrations i meet with in which the dead have returned to ask the prayers or the services of the living they do not seem as will be seen by and by to apply by any means exclusively to members of their own church the attrait which seems to guide their selection of individuals is evidently not of a polemical nature the pure worship of god and the inexorable moral law are what seem to prevail in the other world and not the dogmatic theology which makes so much of the misery of this there is a fundamental truth in all religions the real end of all is morality however the means may be mistaken and however corrupt selfish ambitious and sectarian the mass of their teachers may and generally do become while the effect of prayer in whatever form or to whatever ideal of the deity it may be offered provided that offering be honestly and earnestly made is precisely the same to the supplicant and in its results i have reserved the following story which is not a fiction but the relation of an undoubted and well-attested fact till the present chapter as being particularly applicable to this branch of my subject some ninety years ago there flourished in glasgow a club of young men which from the extreme profligacy of its members and the licentiousness of their orgies was commonly called the hell club besides their nightly or weekly meetings they held one grand annual saturnalia in which each tried to excel the other in drunkenness and blasphemy and on these occasions there was no star among them whose lurid light was more conspicuous than that of a young mr archibald b who endowed with brilliant talents and a handsome person had held out great promise in his boyhood and raised hopes which had been completely frustrated by his subsequent reckless dissipations one morning after returning from this annual festival mr archibald b having retired to bed dreamed the following dream he fancied that he himself was mounted on a favorite black horse that he always rode and that he was proceeding toward his own house then a country seat embowered by trees and situated upon a hill now entirely built over and forming part of the city when a stranger whom the darkness of night prevented his distinctly discerning suddenly seized his horse's rein saying you must go with me and who are you exclaimed the young man with a volley of oaths while he struggled to free himself that you will see by and by returned the other in a tone that excited unaccountable terror in the youth who plunging his spurs into his horse attempted to fly but in vain however fast the animal flew the stranger was still beside him till at length in his desperate efforts to escape the rider was thrown but instead of being dashed to the earth as he expected he found himself falling falling 
falling still as if sinking into the bowels of the earth at length a period being put to this mysterious descent he found breath to inquire of his companion who was still beside him whither they were going where am i where are you taking me he exclaimed to hell replied the stranger and immediately interminable echoes repeated the fearful sound to hell to hell to hell at length a light appeared which soon increased to a blaze but instead of the cries and groans and lamentings which the terrified traveller expected nothing met his ear but sounds of music mirth and jollity and he found himself at the entrance of a superb building far exceeding any he had seen constructed by human hands within too what a scene no amusement employment or pursuit of man on earth but was here being carried on with a vehemence that excited his unutterable amazement there the young and lovely still swam through the mazes of the giddy dance there the panting steed still bore his brutal rider through the excitements of the goaded race there over the midnight bowl the intemperate still drawled out the wanton song or maudlin blasphemy the gambler plied for ever his endless game and the slaves of mammon toiled through eternity their bitter task while all the magnificence of the earth paled before that which now met his view he soon perceived that he was among old acquaintances whom he had known to be dead and each he observed was pursuing the object whatever it was that had formerly engrossed him when finding himself relieved of the presence of his unwelcome conductor he ventured to address his former friend mrs d whom he saw sitting as had been her wont on earth absorbed at loo requesting her to rest from the game and introduce him to the pleasures of the place which appeared to him to be very unlike what he had expected and indeed an extremely agreeable one but with a cry of agony she answered that there was no rest in hell that they must ever toil on at those very pleasures and innumerable voices echoed through the interminable vaults there is no rest in hell while throwing open their vests each disclosed in his bosom an ever-burning flame these they said were the pleasures of hell their choice on earth was now their inevitable doom in the midst of the horror the scene inspired his conductor returned and at his earnest entreaty restored him again to earth but as he quitted him he said remember in a year and a day we meet again at the crisis of his dream the sleeper awoke feverish and ill and whether from the effect of his dream or of his preceding orgies he was so unwell as to be obliged to keep his bed for several days during which period he had time for many serious reflections which terminated in a resolution to abandon the club and his licentious companions altogether he was no sooner well however then they flocked around him bent on recovering so valuable a member of their society and having wrung from him a confession of the cause of his defection 
which, as may be supposed, appeared to them eminently ridiculous. They soon contrived to make him ashamed of his good resolutions. He joined them again, resumed his former course of life, and when the annual Saturnalia came around, he found himself with his glass in his hand at the table, when the president, rising to make the accustomed speech, began with saying, "'Gentlemen, this being leap year, it is a year and a day since our last anniversary, etc., etc.' The words struck upon the young man's ear like a knell, but ashamed to expose his weakness to the jeers of his companions, he set out the feast, plying himself with wine even more liberally than usual, in order to drown his intrusive thoughts, till, in the gloom of a winter's morning, he mounted his horse to ride home. Some hours afterward, the horse was found, with his saddle and bridle on, quietly grazing by the roadside, about halfway between the city and Mr. B.'s house, while a few yards off lay the corpse of his master. Now, as I have said in introducing the story, it is no fiction. The circumstance happened as he related. An account of it was published at the time, but the copies were bought up by the family. Two or three, however, were preserved, and the narrative has been reprinted. The dream is evidently of a symbolical character, and accords in a very remarkable degree with the conclusions to be drawn from the sources I have above indicated. The interpretation seems to be that the evil passions and criminal pursuits which have been indulged in here become our curse hereafter. I do not mean to imply that the ordinary amusements of life are criminal. Far from it. There is no harm in dancing, nor in playing at loo either. But if people make these things the whole business of their lives, and think of nothing else, cultivating no higher tastes, nor forming no higher aspirations, what sort of preparation are they making for another world? i can hardly imagine that anybody would wish to be doing these things to all eternity the more especially that is most frequently envy that drives their votaries into excesses even here but if they have allowed their minds to be entirely absorbed in such frivolities and trivialities surely they cannot expect that god will by a miracle suddenly obliterate these tastes and inclinations, and inspire them with others better suited to their new condition. It was their business to do that for themselves while here, and such a process of preparation is not in the slightest degree inconsistent with the enjoyment of all manner of harmless pleasures. On the contrary, it gives the greatest zest to them, for a life in which there is nothing serious, in which all is play and diversion, is beyond doubt next to a life of active, persevering wickedness, the saddest thing under the sun. But let everybody remember that we see in nature no violent transitions. Everything advances by almost insensible steps, at least everything that is to endure, and therefore to expect 
that because they have quitted their fleshly bodies, which they always knew were but a temporary impertinence, doomed to perish and decay, they themselves are to undergo a sudden and miraculous conversion and purification, which is to elevate them into fit companions for the angels of heaven and the blessed that have passed away, is surely one of the most inconsistent, unreasonable, and pernicious errors that mankind ever indulged in. End of chapter 10